Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. This is part two of this series on the Heart Sutra, on wisdom beyond wisdom. Um, We covered the title last time, (laughs) (laughs) Maha Prajna Paramita Heart Sutra. And uh, I hope what you took away from the title is the sense of maha, the sense of maha greatness, unsurpassable, limitless greatness, uh, being synonymous with shunya, with emptiness. Um, So emptiness is a word. Um, It's not a thing. And emptiness stands on the side of the object. So an object is empty. Empty of what? Empty of a self. Empty of swabhava. Empty of self-being. Empty of its own being. So we know this from particle physics. We know this from biology. We know this from neuroscience. That when you look closely at what you think of as a thing, it's empty. Which begs the question, empty of what? It's empty of a substantial self. It's empty of thingness. So emptiness is not a place you get to. And emptiness is also not something you realize. Emptiness is just a strategy you use to see. So emptiness is like a a, a pair of lenses you put on to see the world through that lens. And what's the lens you're seeing the world through? You're seeing uh, through the lens of realizing in your whole being, that things are not what you think they are because they don't have inherent thingness. So from the side of the object, there is emptiness. And from the side of the subject, there is pragna. So what does pragna, what does wisdom recognize? It recognizes emptiness. But emptiness is not a thing. You see? The great philosopher Nagarjuna says, uh, mistaking emptiness is like catching a snake by the wrong end. Because <laughs> people do this all the time. They get this teaching of emptiness and they turn it into a thing, just like we do with God. And then instead of seeing uh, the world 
through this lens of emptiness, which is, from the subject's perspective, prajna, which is wisdom, we turn emptiness into a thing. And that's when you hear people say things like, you know, you know drop into pure emptiness, as if there's like this, this void you can go into. Now, there is a void you can go into, and it's called dissociation. Right? And that's what most of us are in all the time. But actually, to, to practice uh, really seeing the way things are, and the way things move, and the way things change, this is prajna. This is the wisdom of expressing emptiness. Um, so shunyata, emptiness, is very large. There's nothing larger than emptiness, even though it's not a thing. And also, it's not a process. As soon as you say to the, the mind goes, okay, it's not a thing, then it's a process. But it's not a process either. Um, it's like a massive balloon. It's a very, very heavy balloon. But it's completely full at the same time. Um, something that can look very weighty can be as light as a feather. So what about your depression? What about your grief? What about your enemies? When you have an enemy, you have decided about them. And the walls you've put up and have to maintain in order to have an enemy, uh, they're really heavy. When you're depressed, uh, you're so consumed by your stories. But you don't see it. They're just so heavy. They're so heavy. Um, it's one of the reasons why depression and anger look so similar, I think. Because in depression and also in anger, we tend to be so caught up in our theory about our lives or our theories about others. And from a psychological perspective, in therapy, what you see is the times when people start to move out of their depression look exactly the same of people as people who shift out of their anger, which is when they see what they're caught in is a story. And then they can allow themselves to feel something. So the emptiness of something is full of something else. So the emptiness of a balloon is full of helium. Uh, my life is empty because it's full of everything else. Your life is empty because it's full of everything else. So emptiness is a kind of fullness because it's empty of a separate self. And why we have so many problems is because we firmly believe that we are separate from the world, and the world is separate from us. So that's why our practice has to always work at a psychological level, recognizing all the stories we have that get caught up in one another, and then projected onto others. Then we have to work at an interpersonal level, because that's the best place to see where you're unconscious, is interpersonally. 
Because other people can't stand to be a character in your story. And what they'll do is they'll find ways to interrupt your story. And that's why relationships suck. (laughs) Because you can't control the story. Other people are going to, to mess it up. For a while, we collude with others to keep the same story going. But over time, that won't work either. Because those people who we're in relationship with are also in relationship with others. And other people will ruin their story, which will then influence your story together. Um, When my life is empty of separation and heaviness, it's full of something else. It's full of fluidity and compassion. So the emptiness is not so much a subtraction. When I see my life as, as, or when I live in a way where I'm not so invested in outcomes and so invested in my past and so caught up in my future, then I'm full of something else, which is just the fluidity of how uh, compassion happens. So this is what pragna recognizes. And emptiness is really, and I think I touched on this yesterday or two days ago, is that emptiness is just a deeper explanation of impermanence. So the Heart Sutra, what it does to the Buddhist tradition is it takes the Buddha's focus on emptiness and it reworks it to emphasize a deeper level of impermanence. Because what happens is, if you say things are impermanent, it gives you two problems. The first problem is that there are these things, and they are impermanent. Like my bicycle is this thing, and it's impermanent. It's easy to do with objects. But then when you start doing it with these human things, like, uh, for example, a mood. Oh, a mood is this thing, I have it. And it's impermanent. And so here, Avalokiteshvara, this bodhisattva of compassion, is saying that's not enough. It's not enough to say that your anger is impermanent. You also have to see that the anger is not a thing. That it's just a mood that arises in conditions. Nobody's angry all the time. So then you would argue, well, because anger is impermanent... But actually, who's the anger happening to? The anger is also happening to this contingent situation that's also changing. So there's no thing there, you see, that's permanent. So the deepest level of impermanence is emptiness. And the realization of this is pragna. And the expression of it is compassion. Because what else are you going to do? (laughs) you recognize impermanence and if you just get a story about that it's really depressing so you recognize impermanence and that becomes your philosophy it's really, really depressing why why would I get involved with anything if it right, it is just going to change
And even the present moment that we're so into these days, it also is not a thing either. Because as soon as you recognize it, it's passing. Okay? So that's the view from this perspective of impermanence. But if you go further, you can say, there was no it there at the beginning to pass. I mean, this is one of the, the insights in the yoga and Buddhist tradition that Western psychology and philosophy still have such a hard time with, which is we're, we're still in this Freudian idea that, and, and Kierkegaard and Kant, Heidegger, Nietzsche, this sense that, that our greatest fear is that things are changing and we're going to die. But the, the yogic analysis, the Heart Sutra analysis of that, is your greatest fear is not actually that you're going to die. Your greatest fear is that you don't actually exist in the way you think you exist. So you see this move from impermanence to emptiness? So impermanence is like, you're going to die. This is really painful. And that's true. But if you take that a step further... The you that you think is going to die doesn't actually exist now in the way that you think it exists. And this is what, this is the area I like to push people. It is to to experience this in a way that actually shifts how you see your life. How you see others' lives. And for most people, what I see is when they have a kind of experience where they see their life in this way. They shift out of being a separate self. Then something changes and they want to do good. I can't, I can't explain it. They just want to help others. Including this. This is others also the one body. So the expression of emptiness, the classical one, is you're walking down a path, you step on a thorn, and immediately your hand comes down, grabs the thorn, and pulls it out. Your hand doesn't say, well, you know, I'm not feeling that compassionate today, and it's like really stinging, but like, I just don't, I just don't feel it for the heel. And I'm just going to, you know, keep eating or whatever. So this reflex is the one body. This is the one body. That's the expression of recognizing interconnectedness. It's just a reflex for how to live. So Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva, is doing deep prajnaparamita. And Avalokiteshvara clearly sees the emptiness of all the five aggregates, of all the five conditions, of the five skandhas. So, when the Buddha wanted to talk about what a person was, when he wanted to look at what his life was, when he wanted to understand what is a self, what does it mean to be? And I think all of us have this time in our life where you're looking outside of yourself to get satisfied. Maybe a couple of you are still doing this. 
And then one day you, you really recognize that part of the source of your dissatisfaction is just being a self all the time. So the Buddha asks this question, well, what is a self? How, how can I, and, and not philosophically, but more for himself, like, how do I look at what a self is? And how do I look at myself? So he started meditating on what is it that makes me a self? So this is, again, not kind of like epistemological, but more phenomenological in a subjective way. How do, how do I experience myself? So the Buddha comes up with this list of what he calls the five aggregates. And if you look in your handout, I have uh, written the list down um, on the uh, third last page in the glossary. Um, oh, is it that page? No. Fourth last page, the five aggregates of clinging. I'm sorry that the pages aren't numbered. Does, have you found it? The bottom of uh, which page is that, Rose? Third. Third page? Third from the back. Oh. Is it third from the front? Third from the back. So. One place that a lot of people go wrong with the five aggregates is thinking that they exist. But what the Buddha calls the five skandhas are the five aggregates of clinging. So this is a really important point. So the five aggregates don't exist out there. You can't find them. Do you know what an aggregate is? It's kind of in Ontario when you're on a highway, you see these aggregate depots where there'll be like manure, um, uh, um, you know, wood, uh, um, what's that? Wood chips. Wood chips, uh, sand, salt, uh, potash. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a heap. Yeah. Um, so the five heaps. But they only exist because of clinging. Because the self only exists because of grasping. So when you say the five aggregates, it's important to add to that the five aggregates affected by clinging. Because if there's no clinging, there are no aggregates. Okay. So this is another lens that we're using. And this is the lens the Buddha used to see through himself. What? What am I? Descartes did this too, right? Descartes was very, very courageous and said, you know, what am I? And then had this brilliant recognition that I only am because I think I am. And the Buddha is saying, yes, and if you just go a little further, what is that? What's that made out of? And so he says, there seem to be five aggregates. The first aggregate is rupa, which is form, which is materiality. So if you check out this skin bag, as Karina likes to say, um, the teeth are hard. The gums are soft, hungpa, eyes move around. So there's materiality. And subjectively, 
We experience the world through materiality. The ears hear because of vibration. The eyes see because of light waves. Um, We experience the world at a material level. And then he says, and there's also feeling. When you have a sensation of the material world, you also have feeling. Now, the Buddha's definition of feeling is just positive, negative, or neutral. Okay, so it's not feeling like depressed. It's just feeling that there's a feeling that can be pleasant, a feeling that's unpleasant, and a feeling that's neutral. That's how the Buddha describes feeling, or vedana, which is the same in Pali and Sanskrit. The third skanda is perception, sanya. So perception is not raw information, raw raw data, rather. Perception is the way you subjectively experience reality. And as we all know, you can't get out of your subjectivity. So I can't experience the color of light in this room now, independent from these eyes. And these eyes are affected by my environment, by my upbringing, by, uh, some would argue, my gender, the color of my skin. I see what I'm trained to see. And we can study and see through our subjectivity, but you can't escape your subjectivity. And the same is true with your ears. So I think all of us, deep listening, when we do this, what we're really looking at is how much we can't hear. When you really practice listening, like Patanjali with the conch shell at his ear, when you really practice deep listening, what you're really looking at is also how it's so hard to listen sometimes. Especially to viewpoints that don't agree with your viewpoint. So, this is an example of perception. Perception is always subjective. And in the academic world, this is a huge area of study right now. Because there are some academics who say which is very interesting to think about, is that you can't have a mystical experience that's independent of your subjectivity. That language influences your perception to such a degree that as soon as you're aware of something, it gets plugged in to that pattern. So that when you have an experience free of concepts immediately the brain comes in and tries to ground it in a context. And the context is going to be your cultural vocabulary. So you have an experience, and you've been trained in the koan tradition, and this is the experience of Joshu. You've been trained in the uh, Hare Krishna tradition, and this is Krishna consciousness. You've been in the Jewish tradition, and you've you know walked up Jacob's ladder. 
So this is a very interesting thing, is can we have meditative experiences that are unmediated, unfiltered? So this is perception. I'm not going to go too far down that road. Uh, Mental formations. As soon as you've perceived something, the mind comes in and forms it. And this is what I keep calling asmita, or the storyteller, sense of self. So the self is the ego's attempt, no, the self is the self's attempt to grasp itself. And that's a mental formation. We do it all the time. Why do you create a story about somebody else? Does anybody have someone in their past that they just have this story about they just can't shake? Yes. Yeah. Why do you do that to have a sense of your own self? We do that for us. And there's a part of it that's healthy and a part of it that's exhausting. Because nobody can ever fit into that story you've created for them. It's like that poem I read last night. From one basin to another, stuff and nonsense. The fifth skanda, bless you, is consciousness. Consciousness. So consciousness is the awareness that arises when a sense organ and a sense object come together. So when the light comes in and the eye touches the light, you get eye consciousness. Okay. When a scent comes in, the incense burning comes past my head, touches the nose, you get smell consciousness, nose consciousness. Okay? So there's six kinds of consciousness because there are six sense organs. Eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. When the brain and a thought come together, you get mind consciousness. So... There's no, like, consciousness that's there all the time. Because that wouldn't be emptiness, would it? You see? And this is totally in line with contemporary neuroscience that's going through a kind of nervous breakdown right now. Because there's this realization that your brain doesn't exist. Because we used to think there's these nerves and they go down to these parts and communicate with the brain. And then we start discovering hormones and chemicals. And now we don't know where the brain starts and when it ends. The whole thing's brain. And it also isn't just inside you. So now neuroscience is starting to become very good friends with the Buddhists. Because they're saying, well, that's a powerful thing to say that there is no consciousness. That consciousness is just the interaction of sense organs and sense objects. Nose, tongue, body, mind, and all these consciousness are appearing. But that's not how we thought about consciousness in the last century. We thought there was this thing called consciousness. And because because there's consciousness, I'm aware of the building over there. 
But in this framework, it's saying, no, actually, just because, and meditators know this, right? You can watch these moments of eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, scent, and that's all coming together, and it feels like a self. And in meditation practice, we're slowing down to watch that sparkling. It's kind of like if you took a sparkler, has anybody done this before? And you make an Enso really fast. And then you look at it. In Japan, I was learning how to make matcha tea ceremony. And you have to use your wrist really, really quickly to make matcha. Oh, or look at this. Look at what Rose just pulled out. Yeah? Okay. So you look, so you look at the pattern. So when you, do, when you, when you use, uh, when you're making matcha, you make an R. This pattern, R, over and over again. It's really hard. And after a while, you can see the R. Okay? Or if you take a sparkler and you spin it around, it just looks like a circle. But actually, those are just points of light, points of contact, vibrations, light waves, sounds, coming together. So that's consciousness. So the Buddha is saying, when I really look at what I am, what I see are these five heaps. I see that there's materiality. I see that there's feeling, perception, mental formation, consciousness. Now, some of you might say, well, how did he choose these five? And you don't have to, actually. I don't think it's important. Uh, Maybe some of you might say, well, I could add a couple categories. But I think if you were to try to add six, seven, eight, nine aggregates, you'd see that they'd fit into the first five. And so in Theravada Buddhism, in early Buddhism, there's this notion that a self is made up of five aggregates. And that is a core Buddhist theory. Absolutely at the core is the five aggregates affected by them. So then, Avalokiteshvara comes around and says, five aggregates? No. Uh, there are not five aggregates, actually. That, that, too, is another conceptualization. So you can read the Heart Sutra on two levels. One level is just political polemics, which is, this is Mahayana Buddhism taking a shot at Theravada Buddhism, saying, that idea you have about the five aggregates It doesn't make any sense. Because if you really understand emptiness, there are no aggregates. So, for example, try and find where your hearing ends and a sound starts. Or when you inhale, at what point up your nose... Does it stop becoming air and become you? Or you uh, eat a carrot or drink some water. I'll drink some water. At what point does this stop becoming water and become 
Michael. So then you see it's conceptual. It's very conceptual. Now, that sounds very philosophical, but it really gets going when you're in pain. So you're in pain, and then you start to see, how am I constructing this? And who's this actually happening to? And then some spaciousness can arise. So Avalokiteshvara is doing deep prajnaparamita because he clearly sees the emptiness. So, the, the, so my dharma name is Shoken, which is the Japanese for this term, clearly see. Clearly sees emptiness. So I love this line because it's, it's in me sometimes. Um, clearly sees the emptiness of the five skandhas thus completely relieving misfortune and pain. Um, If you've studied some various translations of the Heart Sutra, you'll see that this line doesn't occur in many versions of the Heart Sutra. Uh, Completely relieving misfortune and pain. Um, This line only occurs in some of the texts because in... 7th century China there was a fellow named Swan San and he had a rough childhood and decided at age 17 to ordain as a Buddhist monk in China 7th century so at 17 years old becomes a monk and he studies in China for 7 years and then he decides it's not enough and he wants to go to the source of the Dharma, which he imagines is in India. Because we all do this, right? Like, Toronto cannot be the real practice. <laughs> There's no way this is the real. Like, I need to go to the source. And then you get to the source, and it's like, well, this can't be the source. Because <laughs> this person had a teacher, you know? And the worst is when you meet your teacher's teachers. Because it's always such a disappointment. It's like, what? Um, So uh, he goes to India, and interestingly enough, he goes to India and he makes a pilgrimage there for 30 years across the Gobi Desert. So could you imagine somebody who's 17 years old crossing the desert in the 7th century from China to India? This is a dangerous dangerous path. But he's really determined. And he wants to make of his life the Dharma. So when he's traveling, he encounters a lot of ghosts. And it scares him really deeply. And I think this is true for us also when we go on pilgrimage or we travel. Has anybody done this? So uh, nowadays we internalize the ghosts. We don't believe because of our paradigm for how we see our lives. We don't think they're out there. Uh, We think they're in here. But either way, they're ghosts and goblins and demons and 
Casper's not around. <laughs> and, um, and he's really tortured, really tortured. And one day he meets an old man uh, who's sick and very ill, and it really shakes him. Uh, yesterday I wasn't here in the morning because I uh, have an old injury, so I went to get an MRI. You know, it's not really bothering me, but I, I wanted to see what it looked like. So I went to Mount Sinai Hospital, and I've spent so much time in that hospital. Like Family members have died in that hospital. I have friends who have given birth in that hospital. Um, so I've taught mindfulness in that hospital. Um, <coughs> And then you just get on the elevator, and so many people having a hard time. Really, really powerful. And then you walk out of the hospital. And for those of you who are not from Toronto, you don't know this, but when you walk out of the hospital at Mount Sinai onto University Avenue, and all you see are hospitals. In every direction you look is hospitals. And it's just like a magnet of dukkha. Magnet of suffering. Or hospitals, the people in the hospitals, people working in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes we defend, I think, against this when you meet somebody who's ill, or you meet someone who's really old. Like we we kind of defend a little from the impact of seeing that coming out of doing headstand getting on my bicycle, biking over the hospital, walking in the doors. There's no one in the elevator with me who'd ever be on a bicycle. Probably again in their life. I happen to get in one of those big elevators where it's all like stretchers and wheelchairs. Just to shift into that place. So this is what happened to Swan Tang. Who knows, maybe he was in his early 20s at this time. He's in India made it there, meets this old man, and the old man says to him, if you encounter ghosts, and if you have misfortune, just chant, gate, gate, para gate, para sangate bodhisattva. Just chant that. And that's how he wakes up to the Heart Sutra. And the line in the Heart Sutra that he really woke up to is just before that that mantra where uh, it said um, no hindrance in the mind no hindrance therefore no fear so the heart sutra is a teaching about no fear it's a teaching of fearlessness if you're not grasping to the skandhas then how can there be fear so easy to say. <laughs> so then he added this line, uh, thus completely relieving misfortune and pain. You see, Avalokiteshvara sees clearly that the skandhas are empty, which means they're full. Huh? Full of something else. Then how can you be scared? And so if you have misfortune, you just chant, gate, gate, para, gate. And I got turned on to that chant because when I was younger, I liked the clash. 
And The Clash came out with a song, and in the background of the song, Allen Ginsberg is chanting, Gate, gate, para, gate, para. If you listen closely, you can hear this chanting in the back. Turns out it's Allen Ginsberg <laughs> chanting the Heart Sutra. That was the first time I ever heard of the Heart Sutra. What is going on back then? <laughs> Did you, did you recite the whole thing or just that one? Just got to, got to. Um, I'll remember. I'll remember. It's not definitely not. Um, oh, Shari Putra. Um, if you read the Red Pine book, you'd notice that this is not such a good translation. It's not O Shariputra, it's here Shariputra. And that's very important. Right here. So Avalokiteshvara is saying, because if you say O Shariputra, it sounds like, oh, Shariputra, everything's empty. But Avalokiteshvara is like grabbing him and going, here, here, Shariputra. I think Red Pine said it was the most important word in the book. So important, yeah. Here, right here, Shariputra. So let's just back up, though, a little bit. Who is Shariputra? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Shariputra is the master of the Abhidharma. So there was a sect of Buddhism after the Buddha died called the Sarvastivadins. And that sect developed a series of texts called the Abhidharma, which I have studied, which is impossible. If you think the Yoga Sutra is dry, you should try the Abhidharma. So basically, it, it points out in detail what can go on in the mind, moment to moment. 64 moments in a moment called kshanas and um, it's really it's really cool it's also a bit speculative um, and uh, Shariputra was a master of the Abhidharma in other words he was so well read he was like the PhD with a few PhDs he knew Buddhist teachings inside out Sometimes people like this make me sad. Where somebody knows so much about a tradition, so much about the form, and yet they're not awake. So he's coming to talk to Avalokiteshvara, who's the deity of compassion. And the deity is teaching Avalok- is teaching Shariputra. And the deity is like grabbing Shariputra and saying, Shariputra, no, no, not out there. Right here. This is empty. I remember when I started my psychotherapy practice, I had this amazing supervisor named Philip McKenna, who's still working. He started a place in Toronto called the Center for Training in Psychotherapy. And he was was my supervisor. I remember I had this real problem with a, a client, just it was so hard with him all the time. We were so stuck together, you know, 
They were stuck. I was stuck with them. We were stuck together. We didn't know what to do. And one day, uh, we were working together, and then he just looked up at me and said, You're free! Such a good teaching. Because he was seeing that he was stuck too. So he was saying to me, You're free. What do you need to do? Do what you need to do. And I remember there was this feeling like I could breathe again. And the issue was that this person had a lot of issues around money. A lot of issues around money. And so I was just starting, and I was a very idealistic therapist, and I had very strong politics, which is therapy should be cheap and accessible. So, you know, I was letting this person pay what they could, but they were kind of taking advantage of me. And then I had a hard time kind of bringing it up with them. Because when I started bringing it up with them, they were accusing me of taking advantage of them. So very confusing. So then when Philip said to me, you know, you're free, I just felt like, okay, let's just see what happens. And I, I, I went in the room. I won't give you all the details, but what we eventually came up with was um, that uh, they would take out their wallet and pull out all their credit cards, all the money that they had, and then I would take out my wallet, and I would show all the money I had and all my credit cards. And then they would take a portion of their money, and they would just put it between us, and that would be how much they would pay for the session. We did this every session for a year, once a week. And it was real because we came up to this together because he wanted to know it was really important for him to know how much money I made. It was hard for him to give me money because he couldn't understand if I had money or didn't have money. And he was constantly scheming. And because I had good boundaries, I wasn't going to talk about it. This was his problem. But he needed me actually to come down a little and just show him how much money I had. So I said, I'll show you how much I have today. Really like this. And actually, it turns out, it had nothing to do with money. He just really needed somebody, like we all do, I think, to just come down to his level. So then he said, okay, well, I'll show you how much I have, and then let's, out of that, I'll just give you some of it. He just needed the ritual. He just needed the ritual. But I wouldn't have the confidence to do it, unless Philip said, you're free. What, what, what do you need to do? So this is how a deity of compassion operates. And the deity of compassion, remember, is not separate from you. It's when you're the bead rolling on the tray, you are that deity of compassion. Showing up. What does this moment need? But we're so... I mean, is anyone planning their life? No. No. You know, a couple of years ago, I had a... a, my, My son has a friend, and their parents have on their fridge like each of their names and then a timeline and then the timeline starts like now and then it has like 2013, 2015, 2019 and there's all these things on it like the trip to Africa, the second baby, the like leaving the job and I looked at their fridge and I just felt so badly. I thought, Am I supposed to be doing this? It's like when people tell you about like 
retirement savings. I always feel like, am I supposed to be doing this? <laughs> so, so these people have this whole timeline. And then I, it's, it's so sad in a way, too. How can you live with just that? Yeah. Well, we do. We all do. I do. We all do. Have you looked at my website? <laughs> like my whole year. I, thought, I know what I'm doing for two years. Name a weekend, I'll tell you where I'll be. We do this. And also, if we don't have wisdom, then we, we, we get fixed. It has to be like this. It has to be like this. And then we can't respond. We can't respond because we're fixed. So here, Shariputra, form, form, it's no other than emptiness. So now he's going to go through all the aggregates. And the first one is form. Right? So how many aggregates are there? Five. So here's the first aggregate. Shariputra, you know this aggregate you've been studying and you're a master of, master of technical Buddhist psychology? Well, actually, it's form and it's empty. And then he says, uh, the same is true for the other aggregates. Sensation, conception, consciousness, they're all like this. All the aggregates are like this. Form is no other than emptiness, and emptiness is no other than form. But even before you get to that, because this is we're going to have a lot of fun with this, Let's just back up a little more about Avalokiteshvara and Shariputra. Avalokiteshvara is practicing deep prajnaparamita. So red pine says, oh, or this is the most, or here is the most important. But I say practicing is the most important word. Because in spiritual language, which we all suffer from, we, we make processes into states. So Avalokiteshvara, who is the deity of compassion, is practicing. As soon as you say deity of compassion, you might think, oh, they're just pure compassion. But Avalokiteshvara is practicing. Gary Snyder has a wonderful poem like this, where he says... Go ahead, you be the deity of compassion, and I'll be the cab driver driving you home. Isn't that like a nice stick to all the monks? Go ahead, you be compassionate, and I'll be the cab driver driving you home. Uh, I was at a monastery last fall during the Occupy Movement. And a lot of the monks in the monastery wanted to be part of the Occupy movement. But they weren't allowed to leave for more than an hour. So then they finally left, and then all the people in the Occupy movement were like, we need a place to sleep. And then there's this monastery with all these beds. <laughs> and then the management of the monastery said, no way, you can't bring all these people back to the monastery. And all the monks were like, well, isn't this what we do? We're, we have beds, we have food, we support the cause. They support our practice. So let's... And this was a real, real tense 
uh, for the monks. And actually, a year later, some monks left because they really had a very deep awakening in this instance where some people fell to the side of, well, I get it. You know, we're a monastery. We can't just bring in everybody because we couldn't afford it. And some monks were saying, well, that's not the kind of monastery I want to practice in. And some people felt you know, to the other. Well, I just got the two sides. So um, the point is that Avalokiteshvara is active and practicing. That there is no enlightenment that you reach one day. That enlightenment and practice are interdependent. That your practice expresses your enlightenment. And enlightenment is an expression of your practice, and practice is an expression of your enlightenment, enlightenment is an expression of practice, and back and forth. And we hurt ourselves when we think that there is a state that one day we're going to reach where we'll be free. You're free. You're free. Here. Here. You can't be free somewhere else. And you may hear my words, and it may be hard to take them in. Because some part of us is like, no, no, no. This is all leading somewhere, don't you see? I'm training. (laughs) There's a training. I'm training. Robert Thurman says, what's all the practice? When's the performance? So Avalokiteshvara comes and says, No, there are no five skandhas. You keep mistaking the world for what it is not, and then you feel dissatisfied. Our problem comes from the conviction that at the bottom, I keep thinking that I am the focal point. I am the pivot around which the world turns. And Avalokiteshvara is saying, what do you think the world is? Form is empty. Um, What do you notice? Meditation practice. You sit there. And I say things like, wake up, follow your breathing. And then for a moment, you can feel that freedom. And the momentum to close down again, back in to that carapace that we call a self. So strong. Can you feel that? Can you feel that when you're sitting? And it's even harder if you sit trying to get somewhere. When I first trained, I trained in the Vipassana tradition. And one of the things that I always found so difficult in the Vipassana tradition is sometimes the teachers would make you feel like as you started getting good, then you would get somewhere. 
And it was very frustrating for me. And then I started studying in the Zen tradition. It did the same thing. And I dabbled a little in the Tibet tradition. Same thing. You really get the hang of it, you'll get somewhere. And that's why I love the Heart Sutra so much. Because it's just going, nope. <laughs> no. No, no. Look at how many times the word no shows up. So you can replace the word no with empty. Empty, empty, empty. No, 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 no. You just need someone to hit you every time. It's like, no. We all need this. And we have to do it with each other. We have to do it with each other. Because in the same way you can turn a mind state into an idol, you can do it with other people too. And that's why we have to be very careful in spiritual communities. Here I am at the front of the room, wearing this lobster bib. (laughs) And you think, oh, well then, it's easy to turn me into an idol. So that's why we really need to work together to watch that. It's empty. It's a game that we're all agreeing to. But it's empty. And it's really, really important to have the game. Because the boundaries are important. We need to be called on our stuff. It's important. We need some form. It's important. And we can't cling to it at the same time. Maybe I'll take this off and one of you teaches French. And then you'll be the teacher. And I'll learn French. But when you have communities where there's a division of hierarchy that's so great, then there's just suffering. Because you're not getting this. Here. I can't practice for you. All I can do is encourage you. I don't know what you're supposed to do with your life. But... But hopefully, in our relationship together, maybe I can see some things where you shine that you can't see. Because you're trying to get somewhere. But we have to do that for each other, too. Otherwise, we all just reinforce the loneliness that's in the heart of our hierarchical culture. That internalized oppression. And then there's no heart sutra. I remember uh, just over a year ago, in one week, two, two students stopped practicing at Center of Gravity. And one person said, I can't practice here anymore because there's so much hierarchy. Hierarchy. You know, you're the teacher, we're the students. I just can't. I I need to be in a different kind of community. And where I really need to practice is more just like in a yoga studio. Where it's just like a financial exchange. And that's actually a richer community. And this really was saddening to me. And then somebody else left. And they said, I can't practice here because I really need some hierarchy. <laughs> I, need, I need like someone to tell me, like, this is the path, these are the stages, this is the form, this is when you bow, 
you know. And I said, well, it's not exactly how I teach. I can't really offer that. So then they said, well, I have to go. I can't practice here. Same week. <laughs> Two totally different perspectives. It's amazing, isn't it? And this is our subjectivity. But it's also our sangskaras. How we've internalized structures of the culture that we can't see. Or, uh, sometimes we need the opposite of what we've grown up with, too. And that's okay also. So this is why it's so important to get this line. That form is emptiness. There is no such thing as center of gravity. There is no such thing. There is. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's a name for a heap. And you're looking at the heap. Look around. This is the heap, you know. And it comes together, and here we are practicing together, and so we should really appreciate each other. Because we're learning a lot from each other. Even when your mind is clouded and all you want to do is leave and eat chocolate. <laughs> You're working with that. And it's really powerful. And this is how you build community, but it's also how you wake up in yourself. To trust in the practice. Just really to trust in the practice. And let the practice do the work, and most of it's not really your business. You don't need to know about it. Just trust it. One salutation after another salutation. Just trust it. It's working on you. At a level probably you may not fully understand yet. But what it's creating is the ability for you to appreciate your life. And emptiness is not some esoteric state you get to one day. It's here. When you're not clinging, you're not grasping. So Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva doing deep prajnaparamita clearly saw emptiness of all the five conditions, thus completely relieving misfortune and pain. Here, Shariputra, form is no other than emptiness. Form is no other than emptiness. So, according to tradition, we've just got pretty far. (laughs) Actually. So let's stop here. Um, Does anybody have any comments or questions? Maybe we can take for a couple minutes and then we'll have a break. Mike. Um, so the five skandhas. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's the material. There's yeah. The meeting of a sense organ and a sense sense object. Yeah. That's consciousness. Uh-huh. Then there's a decision made about that. I like it. I don't like it. Neutral. Uh huh. Then there's a story told about that. Uh huh. And then there's a mental formation. Uh huh. Is that yeah. the kind of trend? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think the most interesting part of that, well, the consciousness piece is very interesting, but it's just that there's this recognition, and I think this is so different from Western paradigms, that perception is always subjective. 
Because you can't get out of that. And that's because this is a psychology created by meditators, not in laboratories. Look at how long it took in the last century to change the paradigm from objectivity to intersubjectivity. A hundred years it took. A long time. And then you go back 2,000 years to these meditators who, who, who never ever took that perspective of objectivity because they only saw psychology through sitting here and looking at mind. What is it? What is this? And so the Buddha was a fabulous psychologist. Very, very, very insightful. And now here we are, 2012, asking him questions. But we have something to offer, too. We also have something to offer. It's dialogue. Yoga play all this. Uh-huh. The, the actual Western yoga that we know. Uh-huh. You know, how does that. Can you just talk a bit about that? that as yeah. Everything and then we come together in a community to come to our events. Yeah. And because we do that, we go through some exercises and we mm-hmm. start to get, you know, try to focus on the mind body breath and mm-hmm. stuff. And then we get to meet people and we sit and talk. Is that the practice? Is that what we're talking about? Is that. I'm trying to get a, trying to jump from there to the practice. Yeah. So the, the practice is twofold. Yeah. On the one hand, it's saying, here, whatever you're doing is a yoga posture. Yes. Yes. Then we take these formal postures yes. and we drop deeply into the formal postures below this conceptual realm to this realm where we actually are feeling sensation before the mind picks it up and turns it into something. Just pure, raw, sprouted, vegan (laughs) sensation. And then, when you can really open up to sensation, you start to see that sensation is the foreground of something much, much bigger, which is just the vibration of the natural world. And to experience that subjectively. And then to see that what keeps you on the outside of the body is just grasping to the five aggregates. So the the intimacy that we're practicing in yoga, which is to get closer and closer to the fluidity of experience. So I'm talking about the first part. Yes, is identical to what the Heart Sutra is saying. This is a yoga text. And then, the second part of that is to recognize that when we can do that in ourselves, we can start hanging out with other people and really be touched by them in a way that's so deep that it totally changes our lives. And this is the Sangha. This is the community practice. And that's why, you know, modern yoga, for all we can critique about it, one thing it is creating is space where people are coming together where they're not wrecking anything. 
<laughs> except, except maybe their SI joints. <laughs> <laughs> or their hamstrings. It's not like going to the gym. It's not, it's something else to it. Yeah. Yeah. But you can say the same thing about going to synagogue. Yes. You go to synagogue and you hang out at synagogue and it's like you watch people praying and they're just going through the motions. You know? But then there's something really powerful about going through the motions with other people and then eating together. And that's the best part, right? Everyone's like praying as fast as you can so that then you can have the smoked salmon. And then and then everyone's hanging out together and like it's really, really beautiful. Well, you have to be careful going down that line because that's going down the materialist line, where it's like, well, then it's that. <laughs> oh, well, it's that, but it really is that. That's right. It's like going, trying to go deeper to find the origin. That's beautiful about the story of the monk who goes to. India yes. to try and find. Oh, I never finished that story. He goes to India <laughs> and he gets all the original texts and becomes fluent in Pali and Sanskrit. And he's the person who starts bringing the texts from India to China by camel and elephant. And how did he get the text there? By chanting the Heart Sutra. That's how he protected himself and had the confidence to bring all these texts from India to China, which then brings the practice into China, uh, which is a really, really beautiful story. But also the story has another level to it, which is this pilgrimage to an origin. And how really at the origin what he learns is not anything from India. He learns something about himself from this sick man. Just like in psychotherapy. You go into psychotherapy... Because you have this idea that if you just find the origin in your childhood, then you will undo the anxiety in your adulthood. And then you start to realize over time that actually what's healing you has nothing to do with being an archaeologist. What's healing you is just the quality of somebody there who can meet you. Somebody actually shows up and meets you. And some part of you can't believe it. You see this sometimes in psychotherapy. You work with someone and then you totally meet them where you are and they run away. Where they are and they run away. They can't handle it. Because they have this internal schema that no one's ever actually going to really hold me. No one's really actually going to come with me. And the most powerful thing any of us can have in our life is someone who actually shows up there and meets you. And to me, that's a lot more interesting than nirvana. Because it's the expression of nirvana. So... Let's take a break. <laughs>